Let's read this together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell, me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The book of Luke is split into three sections. In John Stott's commentary, he titles the first, The Deeds of the Saviour. The second, The Words of the Saviour. And the third, The Going Forth of the Saviour. We went through the first section up to Easter, we ducked into the third uh, during Easter, and now we're halfway through the second. From the previous few weeks, the titles, Words of the Saviour, is a very fitting one. We found Jesus in front of crowds or groups of people speaking and teaching them. Sometimes he is speaking to the masses, sometimes to his disciples, and other times to small groups of community leaders. But in all of them, he is the one with the dominant voice. A common conversation that happens around many dinner tables, particularly those involving children, when it comes to pudding, goes like this. He's got more than me. Or, that's not fair, I've got less. Sound familiar? Depending on the age of the child, that might be perfectly true. A child doesn't need the same size portion as, a, say, a teenager does. So it might be right that uh, they have a difference. In our passage today, something similar is going on, although it's slightly different. Verse 13, someone in the crowd says to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We don't know anything about who this person was, only that they wanted Jesus to arbitrate over the issue of his inheritance. There is no indication that he has been listening to Jesus' words so far. The question he asks is so off-topic to the previous conversation that it's almost rude. All we know is that he wants this issue judged on, and he sees Jesus as a person with authority who can preside. Firstly, let's take the issue at hand here, the inheritance. When we think of inheritance, we usually think of money. When a relative dies, their estate has to be settled. There may be property to be sold, bank accounts to sort out, and wills to be read through. A will lays out the wishes of the deceased for their estate. Basically, it says who gets what. Hopefully, it's straightforward. But sometimes there needs to be a judgment made. And families end up with awful court cases where the end is not always good for everyone. The inheritance that our man is talking about is much more likely to be land in this context. The Jewish notion of inheritance was and is very strong. 
When the Israelites came out of Egypt and settled in the promised land, it was all split up and given to the different families that made up the nation of Israel. This became their inheritance to pass down through generations to their subsequent families. Land was important because it was a person's livelihood. Having land uh, or not could mean life or death. So settling the issue of inheritance was important. There could be two issues surrounding the man seeking a judgment on his inheritance. The first is to do with age. A certain man dies and leaves his estate to his children. Some of them are of age. In Jewish culture, that would be 13. In our culture, we talk of people being of age at 18. Some of the other siblings may be underage. If this were the case, the inheritance wouldn't be split until all the siblings were of age. You can understand why this might be important. Young children still need to be provided for. And if their brothers took the inheritance to keep for themselves, the youngest would be destitute. However, this doesn't seem to be the issue here. In verse 14, Jesus refers to someone, to the someone as man, and only one other brother is mentioned in verse 13. This would indicate this is a conflict between two brothers, one older, one younger. This leads us to our second possible issue. In Jewish tradition, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 says that a father must give the firstborn a double share of all he has. The idea behind double portion comes with the notion of succession. In 2 Kings 2 verse 9, we find the prophet Elijah asking his student Elisha what he can do for him before he is taken to heaven. Elisha responds with, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. In essence, asking for the right to succeed Elijah in his ministry. The firstborn was to succeed as head of the family. With that came responsibility and a birthright. However, the firstborn doesn't necessarily mean the literal firstborn child. Many of those who received the double portion of inheritance were the first to be born. But sometimes another was chosen in the family. Let's take the story of Jacob and his 12 sons, better known in the musical of Joseph and his technical dream coat. In Genesis 35, 22, we're told that Reuben, who was the first to be born, sinned by sleeping with Bala, his father's concubine. His father finds out, and due to this, the blessing of the firstborn is removed from him, and Joseph becomes the firstborn. Well, actually his children, Ephraim and Manasseh, do, but that's another story. So a firstborn is more of a title than a biological process. It's a place of authority and succession. So for the man in our passage today, I think this has more to do with his grievance against his brother than our first possible issue. We draw this conclusion because in verse 15, Jesus warns to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus sees the heart of the situation. The man is not satisfied with what he has got. He wants more. He wants more of the share of the inheritance. But he has got everything that he deserves. He has got his portion. He doesn't understand what it means to be firstborn. 
Jesus does. In Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul writes of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And again, in verse 18, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus, as firstborn, overall, has the right and privilege of sovereignty. For us today in our Western culture, the issue of firstborn and inheritance isn't an issue, but what about, if your life, what about in your life when it comes to Jesus? Is Jesus the firstborn in your life? Does he have the double portion of your life? The biggest share of who you are? When we come, when we become Christians, we talk of being born again. But when you share up your life, do you give 20% to Jesus, 15% to church, 30% to family, 30% to work, etc., however you break it up? Let's just repeat the end of Colossians 1.18. In everything, he might have the supremacy. See, Jesus should have the supremacy in our lives, not other things. That is the way of discipleship. Eyes on that which you are following and learning from. Is there anything in your life that you are giving the double portion to instead? Is there anything that is agreed in your life? This brings us to the second thing our passages raise. Greed. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus tells the crowd in verse 15. It's true, isn't it? That when we come into this world, we come with nothing. And when we exit this world, we exit with nothing. But in the middle, we accumulate things. We're clearing out our house at the moment before we move. And I can tell you, we accumulate things. Jesus isn't saying in this passage that it's wrong to have stuff. He isn't saying that it's wrong to be productive or driven. What he's saying is to be careful that we don't be consumed by what we have and by wanting to get more. The rich man in our parable works hard and he builds up lots of wealth. He has enough food to last him a long time. His current barn would have been more than big enough to provide for himself and his family, but he decides to tear down that barn and build a bigger one to house the whole of his crop. What could he have done instead? Further on in the next passage, in verse 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. The man could have sold or even given away some of the surplus grain that he had. He could have put it to good use rather than leaving it in a barn somewhere. Numerous times Jesus makes the case for using what we have rather than storing it away. Let's take hope into action as an example. Let's watch this video.
But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Fool seems like such a strong word, and it is. If greed is foolish in God's sight, then with generosity must come wisdom. A few of us were talking the other day, and we wondered what it would be like if, uh, as a nation, we tithed 10% of our national income. We talk about tithing, we talk about 10%. We just wondered what it would be like to give 10% away, what that would look like, what that would do. The UK's gross national income in 2015 was $2.642 trillion. 10% would be $264 billion, $200 million. Britain would be the most generous country on the planet. It's been estimated that it would cost $30 billion a year to eradicate world hunger. Looking at those numbers, which is the wise and which is the foolish thing to do? I'm not saying it's an easy answer. (laughs) But reading this passage and watching and reading some of the information on the Hope Interaction website has made me wonder about the wealth locked up inside the global church. I wonder if we're too quick to build bigger barns when the wise thing to do would be to reinvest, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Reinvest our money, reinvest our resources, reinvest our people, reinvest our time. But what about ourselves, our own resources? What would... God say if he looked at us, would you be called wise or would you be called foolish? Lastly, let's move back to the beginning of this passage because how Jesus starts is how it will all finish. Verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus isn't there to judge on this guy's issues. Jesus has bigger issues to be thinking on. Jesus has come as a judge, and he judges the heart of the man and finds greed there. All through these passages we see Jesus judging and and dividing people, looking at, at the reality of who people are. Ultimately, in today's passage, he's looking at the things people build up on earth with the things that they build in the next life. I had a poster on my wall as a teenager that said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I think my mum put it there to keep me in line. Ultimately, we are all going to have to stand before a judge and a determination is going to have to be made in our lives. Were we wise? Were we foolish? I remember a story I was once told of a dream. A girl was walking down a corridor And she came to a room. And in that room, she found her whole life written out on the walls. Everything she had done, said, thought. As she looked around, she became ashamed and started to rub at the walls. Tears coming down her face, trying to get the words off the walls. She didn't want anyone else to see what was written. She was ashamed. She realised that someone else was in the room with her. She knew Jesus. And instantly she recognised him. Turn around. Don't look. Don't read it. I don't want you to see, she shouts. But instead, Jesus walks to the wall and starts to write. Over and over again, he writes over what's written on the walls. He blots out what is written. 
it's blood red. The girl shouts for Jesus to stop, but he keeps on going over and over. They're my mistakes, my foolishness. I'm sorry, she shouts. She looks up and sees written over it all the words, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. Time and time again, the words are blotted out like they never happened, never to be read again. You see, Jesus is a judge. But here's the clincher. You've already been found innocent. Because the judge has paid your fine. The judge has already taken your sentence. Jesus has taken your foolishness and mine. Do you know him today? Because he is ready and waiting to start writing over the sins of your life. To give you the inheritance that you earn, that he earned for you on the cross. When it comes down to it, there is only one wise and foolish choice. Do you accept the offer that Jesus makes you? Or do you reject him for other things? Do we deserve it? No. Yet, Jesus offers it anyway. In our greed, in our getting it wrong, in our foolishness. Do we deserve it? No. But yet, we're offered it anyway. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you, our wise, gracious, merciful God. And we ask that in our foolishness we can come to you again. That we turn our eyes to you again. We thank you that you find us worthy through your Son. And Lord, I just pray where we have resource that we might be wise with it and not foolish as a church, as individuals, as a community. That we would know your heart and go the way that you're going. Would you bless us, I pray. Amen.